everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin, and today we are diving into the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Before we do that, though, I wanted to let you guys know what um, I put up on my blog this week, five biblical ways to handle holiday stress. So this past weekend, we had kind of a busy, uh, you know, pre-holiday weekend. We had our annual family Thanksgiving dinner and um, all sorts of other things that were kind of out of our control were happening. And so I was feeling the stress and I decided that I would take the time to kind of sort it out and figure out what I could do to, um, you know, kind of handle the weekend without um, getting overwhelmed with it. So I decided to go ahead and just put that into a blog article. So if you are the type that deals with holiday stress or you know someone who is, feel free to go to wrongkindofchristian.com and it will be the very first article on the blog or you can um, also go to um, under the faith tab. There will be, um, it'll be the very first thing under that tab as well. So feel free to check it out. And we are going to move into... Hebrews. Uh, let's see, as we're diving into chapter two, uh, remember the, for the author and his original listeners, this is all one big sermon. So even though we have finished up with Hebrews one, talking about all the ways that God spoke of um, God, the son as superior to the angels, this is kind of just a continuation of that theme here today. But first, the author kind of gives a bit of a warning. The first verse says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, remember who the author is speaking to. These are the Hebrews. These are Jewish converts to Christianity, and they have been facing some opposition from the rest of the Hebrews. Some of them have turned back to Judaism. Um, the author is kind of warning them that, you know, you need to stand firm. And it's not really all that different from kind of what, what we face today. Um, as Christians, we deal with people who kind of push back against us sometimes, and sometimes it's hard to stay the course. And sometimes it's difficult to uh, figure out, you know, how we're going to stay firm and, and continue on with what we know is true. And that's kind of what these guys were dealing with. They were struggling to uh, to defend their faith, but they were also struggling to stand firm because they are hearing it from all sides that this isn't um, what they should be doing. They should be following the traditions and the customs of, of their Jewish heritage. So the author is um, just a kind of encouraging them with a, you know, a firm reminder that they needed to stay the course, stand firm in what they believe and, and remember what it's really all about. The author uses this word, therefore, and we use this word when we're talking about something that we must do in light of something. So here the author is saying, because God the Father has told us that God the Son is superior to the angels, we must therefore hold on to what God the Son told us. So we can't go back to what the angels gave us. And when he says that, he's referring to the Mosaic law. To turn back was essentially the same as drifting away. So basically, 
Because Jesus is superior to the angels, we listen to him and do what he says. The author uses this term um, for drift away, like the, the original Greek term for drift away that he used would be the same word that um, that we would use for like a snowdrift. So uh, a snowdrift is something that happens gradually over time and drifting away is very similar. So one day it's, you know, we, we miss out on our Bible time. We miss out on, you know, if you're a morning devotional person, then you've missed out on that time for whatever reason. The next day, it's that we don't spend time in the Bible and we're also missing our prayer time. And the next day, it's, you know, we we stop talking about how God is working in our lives with other people. And eventually, it's like we stop going to church altogether. So kind of see what I mean. It's, it's a gradual drifting away. So think about... Uh, in your own life, like how many times in life have we lost a friendship because the two people have just slowly drifted apart? You know, you stop connecting with each other. Then one day you look back and you go, oh, I haven't talked to so-and-so in over a year. And you kind of realize that that's crazy, but life goes on. And I mean, you've literally drifted away and, and that's what he's warning them not to do. But then he continues on verses two through four. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so let's break it down. Verse two is referring us back to Mosaic law. So this would be the law that the Jews traditionally knew and followed. The author says um, that this law was binding and that there was punishments for disobeying that law. And we know that. And, and we know that that's why they offered sacrifices. It goes on to say that if there were punishments associated with that law, how much greater will the punishment be if we ignore the salvation that Jesus offers? So, the whole idea of ignoring what Jesus has offered has this Greek connection to the idea of um, basically ignoring an invitation to a wedding feast. It basically means that um, someone had the opportunity but chose to ignore or disregard it. And the problem is that this invitation isn't for a simple wedding feast. This invitation is from the bridegroom directly to his bride the offer of eternal salvation. So if we choose to ignore it, the consequences of that has to be severe. Like literally, if we choose to ignore that invitation, then there is no marriage between the two, no relationship between us and Jesus, us and God. The rest of that section of scripture is a reminder that, yes, this is what Jesus said, but it was also testified to uh, testified to by those who heard and saw Jesus work and by God the Father himself. So let's go on. The next section moves on to discussing how Jesus was fully God, like we've been talking about, but he was also fully man. And this is probably one of the most difficult ideas to try to wrap our heads around. Verses five through eight. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, 
God left nothing that is not subject to them. Okay, let's talk about it. It almost seems like a reiteration here, but it actually goes a step further. So it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. First, uh, we need to understand that the world to come was a very familiar phrase to the Hebrews. They would have easily understood this to mean um, when God's purpose for salvation is complete. So they know that the author is not speaking about the world that they live in that they lived in, nor was he talking about um, the world that even we live in today. We're still not there. So he's um, he's also pointing out though that the angels will not be the ruling authority once God's plan for salvation is complete, just like they are not the ruling authority now. Remember back in chapter one, we read that the angels are here to serve God and he uses them to serve and minister to us. This section continues with a quote of Psalm 8. The author is reminding us that we, as mankind, are so very small when compared to the Lord, but he's also using this verse to point to Jesus, not just in his deity, but also in his humanity. And to be fair to all whom Jesus is, we can't just think of him as a God, and we can't just think of him as a man. He's both with qualities of both. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's easier to think of it like this. His human nature joined with his divine nature so that he could come here, join us in our mankind, and still live in such a way that allowed for him to ultimately offer himself as our perfect sacrificial lamb. The next section kind of further cements that fact, um, verses eight through nine. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This entire section refers back to God's original plan for mankind. He originally gave us authority over all things, and we lost that when Adam and Eve kind of messed up, right? And God spent has spent the rest of mankind planning for our return to that position. So when Jesus took on human nature, he restored that authority, but only unto himself for now. So remember, we're kind of looking forward to the quote unquote world to come when God's plan for salvation will be fulfilled. At that time, us humans who have not ignored the offer of salvation, who are at this time considered a little lower than the angels, will take our rightful places back where God um, originally intended us to be, in a position of authority of the world. Verses 10 through 13 say, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Okay, let's talk about verse 10 for a second. Have you ever wondered why God didn't design some other way to save his people other than through the sacrifice of his own son? I mean, he's God, so he's literally able to do whatever he wants. He could have spoken it and it would have been so. 
The idea that Jesus had to be sacrificed for us follows along with what we know to be true about real love in general. The idea that actions speak louder than words was never more fully illustrated than in Jesus's death for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is an inherent understanding that real love, real giving involves sacrifice. This is also um, kind of illustrated in Mark uh, chapter 12 with the woman who gave her very last coin to the temple treasury. Jesus actually just outright said that she gave more than anyone else because they all gave from their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. And it just means more when it costs us to give something. God so loved us that he gave his son. I think, well, I know all of you parents out there will understand, at least to some degree, the significance of that offering, that he loved the people of the world so much that he was willing to send his only son for us. There can't be a bigger statement in the Bible than that. Verse 11 kind of takes us even further. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Listen to that again. Both the one who makes people holy, that would be Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, we are of the same family. We're literally family. And therefore, there's that word again, therefore, Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. So think back to what the author's intended purpose here is. And it's really to remind the Hebrew Christians of Jesus's humanity. He could not call us brothers and sisters unless he was also human like us. The next section seems almost like a side note to me, but it's definitely a side note worth thinking about. It says, in the assembly, I will sing your praises. Guys, Jesus sang. Like, how cool is that? It was customary at the time to sing a hymn after dinner. Could you imagine like being at, you know, dinner with Christ and hearing our Messiah singing? It thrills my heart to know that Jesus loves to sing too. And then the last section, here am I and the children God has given me. I really kind of love the precious undertones in this quote from Isaiah 8. Jesus finds us precious, not just because of who we are, but because he considers us gifts from the Father. To put it in perspective, think about it like this. Um, think about a gift that you have received that was worth something to you. It may be important to you because of what it was, but it's likely all the more important to you because it came from someone who loves you. And just in that same way, we're precious to Jesus. He loves us because of who we are, but he loves us all the more because we were gifts to him from God the Father. Remember the question from earlier about why Jesus had to become a man and suffer for us? The last few verses of chapter two address this directly. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In order for Jesus to take on the role of eldest brother in our little family, he has to take on the role of a human. I read a quote once that said, Jesus had to enter the prison to free the slaves. Have you ever noticed that it seems to be that sometimes the best person to help another person is someone who's already gone through it? Someone, um, if, if someone is dealing with addiction, a lot of times it's somebody who's already overcome addiction who can help them best or the best person to help someone confront and overcome um, any abuse in their lives is someone who has also been abused and come out on the other side. In order for Jesus to help us and for us to truly rely on him as an older brother um, whom you know we can look to for advice and guidance, he had to become like us. Jesus can understand our lives here on earth because he too lived it. And because of that, he is our perfect high priest. And that is a topic that we'll talk more about in later chapters. But he is able to sympathize and empathize with us and can effectively kind of mediate between us and God the Father. So if you take nothing else away from chapter two of Hebrews, hold on to the fact that Jesus loves you unconditionally. And if you accept his offer of salvation, he will bring you into the kingdom of God and death will have no bite because he will give you eternal life. So in two weeks, we'll move on to chapter three and we'll move on from discussing how Jesus is superior to angels, but also superior to Moses. Next week on Wrong Kind of Christian podcast, I'll be talking with Dan Smith, an author with an interesting take on an old favorite classic novel, kind of perfect for the season. Have a great week, guys. I will talk to you next week. Bye.